Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Were you into comic books as a kid? Marvel, DC Comics, some other graphic novel? What captured your attention? Was it the stories, the visuals, or the characters? Today, we're getting acquainted with another fictional secret police, The Fingermen, from Alan Moore's iconic graphic novel V for Vendetta. The novel was adapted into a feature film in 2006 and released in March of that year, which was met, for the most part, positively by the public, not so much in some political circles in the U.S., and it was not liked by Alan Moore himself. I'll admit, I'm much more familiar with the film version of this art, uh, since I've seen it several times and just recently listened through the graphic novel a few days ago before recording this episode. Special thanks to the YouTube channel Yoda's Kid for reading through their copy of V for Vendetta, the graphic novel. I first tried listening to it on Spotify, but the word graphic is part of that medium for a reason. The experience is just lacking unless you can see the images along with the story. I mean, that's really half of the point, right? Alan Moore himself stated in an interview that V for Vendetta was originally illustrated in black and white uh, with shades of gray, which is a beautiful and genius way to show how his characters, whether they're quote-unquote bad guys or quote-unquote good guys, reflect real life in that we all occupy a gray zone. We'll answer some core questions such as who is Alan Moore? What inspired Moore to write V for Vendetta? What is the world of V for Vendetta? And who are the Fingermen? Spoilers ahead if you haven't seen either the film or read the comic. Now kick back this holiday season as we wrap up 2023 with this relatively short episode. Grab an eggnog, hot chocolate, or maybe some of that stale victory gin if you got some laying around from last year's bonus episode. You're listening to The Secret Police Podcast. Do you have a problem with authority? Because I do. My name is Jack, and I'm on a mission to build a healthy skepticism towards those in power. I spend hours engaging with my morbid fascination of dictatorships and share with you the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. Alan Moore was born on November 18, 1953, in Northampton, England, a town just a bit north of London and someplace I've actually been. Wow. Moore was born into a working-class family, living in a part of Northampton called the Burroughs, which at the time, I don't know about now, was known for being an impoverished area. We're talking poverty so severe that many of the Burroughs' residents were illiterate. He lived in a house with six other people, including his two parents, brother, grandmother, and two other residents. Moore showed a particular aptitude for reading and a fierce intelligence. By age five, Moore was a regular at his library, read widely, and eventually got into comic books, reading British comic books and imported American comics such as The Flash and Fantastic Four. Moore passed an examination known as the 11+, plus, which is basically a standardized test for late elementary school-aged kids. Moore would be eligible to attend the Northampton Grammar School, which he did, but he hated it. 
Coming from the impoverished background that he did, grammar school was the first time really that Moore was exposed to kids from middle-class backgrounds with more education. He also experienced the joyous feeling of going from one of the best performing students in the class to one of the lowest. He took less interest in academics and felt that school imposed rote behaviors and routine structure on students, and Moore wasn't really vibing with this system. In the 1960s, Moore published poetry and got involved in the Northampton Arts Lab. He also got busted at school in 1970 for dealing LSD and was expelled for this. Apparently, the headmaster of Moore's school warned other institutions not to accept him because he was, quote, a danger to the moral well-being of the rest of the students, end quote. Moore moved back in with his parents and worked odd jobs such as cleaning toilets and working in a tannery, which is not baking people in preparation for a Caribbean cruise. It's actually processing animal hide into leather. In 1973, Alan Moore met Phyllis Dixon. The two of them dated and eventually moved into a, a public housing complex in eastern Northampton. Moore wasn't feeling fulfilled by his work, especially since he started working at an office job for some unnamed British gas company. He wanted to find out if he could carve out a living through his artistic expression, namely writing and illustrating comics. He had a decent back catalog of work to draw from, so he at least wasn't starting at zero. When Moore started off, he published some of his work under different pseudonyms, such as Kurt, with a C, Vile. He wrote about a private detective named Roscoe Moscow for Sounds, which was a British music magazine, and they paid him £35 per week for that, or about $8.50 uh, $8 a week, if I did my math and exchange right. At that point, Moore and his partner Phyllis were expecting their first daughter, Leah, and they had to file for unemployment benefits for extra income. He did more work for Sounds Magazine as well. In 1979, Moore created Maxwell the Magic Cat for the North Ants Post, Moore's hometown newspaper. He was paid 10 pounds per week for this work, so he was pulling in 45 pounds per week. Moore sought to improve his craft and sought the help of his friend, Steve Moore, no relation, uh, but Steve was a fellow British comic and writer. They collaborated on a script they submitted to 2000 AD for their Judge Dredd series. Judge Dredd already had two writers, but they saw potential in Moore's writing, Alan in this case. So Alan was basically freelance writing at this point and got plenty of offers to write short stories, but he wanted to contribute regularly to a comic strip. Between 1980 and 1986, Moore really hit his stride because interest in comic books overall increased in Great Britain. Therefore, Moore was really able to find that more regular work he was looking for. Comics were no longer pieces of literature little kids consumed. Teens and even some university-level readers took interest in comics for the very first time. 2000 AD ended up accepting and publishing 50 of Moore's stories. He also worked for a publisher called Quality Communications, which published a monthly magazine called Warrior. He was given two comic strips, one for Marvel Man and another story set in a future dystopian England run by a totalitarian government. In March 1982, Warrior's first issue introduced the world to V for Vendetta. The other work Moore is probably most known for, other than V for Vendetta, is Watchmen. Overall, V for Vendetta shows a bleak future where the United Kingdom is run by a totalitarian government. A masked vigilante known as V is bent on sparking a revolution, driven by a vendetta against those in the government that subjected him and his country to repression and terror. 
V orchestrates a series of symbolic attacks, picking off government officials in an effort to inspire resistance. Evie Hammond, a young woman caught up in V's schemes when she's rescued from the secret police, comes to embrace his ideals. As V escalates his campaign, Evie struggles with her morals and ideology. There are several differences story-wise between the graphic novel and the film. Like I said, I'm more familiar with the film, but I'll make comparisons where necessary or interesting. Very little is known about the rest of the world other than it is torn apart by war. The story starts with Evie Hammond making herself up to meet a man. Her income from her day job is not enough to support herself, so she turns to sex work at great personal risk. On her way to meet a client, in the movie she's stopped by the fingermen, so they cut right to the chase when it comes to the secret police. She just threatened us. That she did, that she did. You know what that means, don't you? It means that we exercise our own judicial discretion. And you get to swallow it. I've got your fingermen. Oh, she's getting the picture. In the comic, Evie goes out to solicit a client, and she ends up propositioning a fingerman who reminds her that prostitution is a crime. In both cases, it's heavily implied that the fingermen intend to rape Evie. But V, the masked vigilante, intervenes. V dons an all-black cloak, capitaine, or pilgrim's hat. He appears to have superhuman strength, or at least an incredible intolerance to pain, and he's skilled with knives. In both the comic and the film, you never see his actual face behind a distinctive smirking mask. V's mask, as well as the comic's illustrations, were created by David Lloyd. Lloyd took direct inspiration from the famous or infamous Guy Fawkes. Here's Alan Moore talking about the creation of V. It was David Lloyd's idea to, and it was a brilliant idea, to actually make him look like Guy Fawkes, um, which we'd been struggling with what this guy should actually look like, and we'd come up with several things that weren't very satisfactory. But um, when Dave suggested, almost as a joke, I don't think he expected me to go along with it, he suggested this sort of Guy Fawkes figure. And as soon as I saw it, I saw that this was genius. Um, it was connecting to this whole British mythology. It, there was something so British and so striking about that iconic image. And it played well into the kind of thinking that was already starting to develop upon the strip. Guy Fawkes lived in the late 16th century and is most known for his involvement in the gunpowder plot. For context, Fox grew tired, or perhaps more appropriately, was radicalized by England's then repression against Catholics. Several plotters, including Fox, initiated a plan where they would assassinate King James I of England and several other government officials using explosives, gunpowder, and lots of it. The plan failed in 1605. Guy Fawkes took most of the blame and he was executed. In England, every November 5th is Guy Fawkes Day where his effigy is burned in celebration. I don't think the graphic novel leaned into the Guy Fawkes backstory as much as the film did. I mean, the opening scene is a depiction of the failed gunpowder plot. You may associate the mask with the hacktivist group Anonymous. This decentralized group uses the Guy Fawkes mask as a quote-unquote face to their movement. Anonymous definitely predates the film, but not the comic. However, the mask wouldn't be adopted by Anonymous until after the film's release. 
let's get to know the alternative history in this universe a bit more. Alan Moore wrote V for Vendetta in the 1980s, so when I make reference to a dystopian future, think of the setting as the 1990s. But it could be any time, really. The concept of the future gives some creative leeway. England finds herself alone in a post-nuclear warscape sometime around 1988. The environmental effects of the war have devastated the UK's food supply, leading to political unrest, rioting, and violence. People turn to an ultra-right-wing party called Norse Fire. In the comic, Norse Fire is led by the leader known as Adam Susan. He is solely dedicated to the job of restoring England's greatness. He professes to have never been with a woman and that his true love is fate, a supercomputer that controls all government surveillance and maintains the bureaucracy. It's like if President AI had a steward. Susan worships this machine like a goddess. In the movie, Norse Fire is led by the High Chancellor Adam Suttler, a nod to Adolf Hitler, or at least a combination of Susan and Hitler. Suttler appears for most of the movie only as a giant screen overlooking his underlings with a disapproving scowl. Suttler is portrayed by the late actor John Hurt, and one thing I personally love about Suttler in the film is this Big Brother-esque overlord on a screen, especially because John Hurt played Winston Smith in the film adaptation of 1984. Hurt played the role of both the oppressed and the oppressor. Suttler isn't really a fleshed out three-dimensional character like Susan in the comic. He is more a cartoonish villain, a classic bad guy for the hero to defeat. Gentlemen, I want this terrorist found, and I want him to understand what terror really means. In the movie, Norse Fire comes to power after a series of biological terrorist attacks allegedly conducted by bona fide terrorists. A deadly virus kills approximately 100,000 people, and Norse Fire and their rhetoric are propelled to win their parliamentary election before Adam Suttler becomes High Chancellor. They wear red and black Nazi-like uniforms and use a red double crucifix as their symbol. And when I say double, just imagine a regular crucifix with an extra horizontal segment near and parallel to the first. It's said that Suttler is a, quote, deeply religious man. That deep religiosity of Norse Fire plays out in the worst way possible in both the film and the comic, because once in power, Norse Fire initiates a campaign of ethnic cleansing, arresting homosexuals, Muslims, basically anyone who doesn't fit their vision of British society. In my research, Adam Moore was inspired to write V for Vendetta as an exploration of his feelings towards Margaret Thatcher's government and her policies. Spoiler alert for those who haven't paid much attention to UK politics, but uh, so the air is cleared, Margaret Thatcher was no Adam Suttler or Susan. Here is Alan Moore talking about some of the origins of his work. I knew a bit about the threat of fascism. Um... So this struck me as potentially a very interesting backdrop for this future world that I was going to be talking about. Because as with most of the future worlds in science fiction, you're not talking about the future. You're talking about the present. You are using the future as a way of giving a bit of room to move, um, a bit of a fantasy element. It makes it into something that is once removed from the thing that you're actually talking about so people can enjoy it on a fantasy level while hopefully perhaps some of the deeper points that you're making are sinking in 
So we, we put V for Vendetta together on that basis. The Norse Fire government is organized in several distinct subdivisions, each named for a part of the head, face, and body. Each department is headed by a member of what appears to be the leader slash chancellor's inner circle. The only members we'll focus on are the secret police chiefs, Mr. Derek Almond and Mr. Peter Creedy. There's the head, which is the executive, the eye and the ear, which is the government's visual and audio surveillance branches, respectively. The nose is the regular police department. The mouth is the propaganda department. The hand is an extension of the executive branch and the finger is the secret police. Their agents are fingermen. This is an interesting separation of powers because you'd think the fingermen would also conduct audio and visual surveillance like we've seen with other secret police like the NKVD, the KGB, or the FSB, but no. The departments and therefore their functions are separate and their duties diverge. The fingermen lurk London at night in search of people breaking curfew. They may not initially reveal themselves to be secret police until they've got you in their web. On these patrols, they appear in plain clothes. When they reveal themselves, they'll show you a little badge with the red Norse fire crucifix. In the film, the fingermen perform all the arrests by breaking into somebody's house in the middle of the night, knocking them to the floor, throwing a black bag over the person's head, and dragging them to an interrogation chamber. For midnight raids and combat against V, the fingermen come prepared with SWAT gear, masks, and heavy arms. In the comic, the finger is first led by Derek Almond, who is killed by V nearly halfway through the story. Spoiler alert, Almond's wife goes insane and ends up assassinating Adam Susan herself by a gunshot to the face as he's stepping out of his car. Derek Almond is succeeded by Peter Creedy. In the film, Peter Creedy is the only secret police chief shown, and there is no mention of a dead Derek Almond. Creedy in the film and the comic is a cold-ass, power-hungry son of a bitch. He reminds me of Beria in that the Norse Fire ideology is only useful as a means to power. In both the comic and the film, it's shown and implied that Creedy intends to somehow overthrow the leader. In the film, he collaborates with V because he knows failure to apprehend V will mean firing at best, death at worst. Settler is kept in an undisclosed location, but it's said Creedy has loyal fingermen as part of Settler's protection detail. The first time you see Settler in person is when he's being dragged into an abandoned tube tunnel with a black bag over his head as a gift for V. When Settler is first revealed, it's like that Wizard of Oz moment. No longer is he a fearsome, distant tyrant on a giant screen, but a tiny man crying like a bitch before Creedy shoots him in the face. Isn't that the way with these people? Beria did the same thing. Cultivated a lot of fear, put people to death, tortured people, but when it was his turn to shake hands with death, Beria cried like a little bitch and begged for his life. You won't cry like him, will you? You're not afraid of death. You're like me. After Settler's death, V then faces Creedy and his fingermen. He overpowers and kills 14 fingermen, then kills Mr. Creedy. One thing that the film showed, but I think was unintentional, is that if you assume Creedy would have been Chancellor after Settler, he never made it there, and that's so on point for secret police chiefs. It's like their own ceiling. These architects and masters of terror and deception don't seem to ever really reach the top spot, at least not so far in my research. Okay, well, I guess Yuri Andropov is a glaring exception. In the comic, V blows up number 10 Downing Street, and in the movie he blows up Parliament, which was the gunpowder plot's target. I thought upon rewatching the movie that showing a government building blow up only five years after 9-11 was somewhat ballsy. Like, the movie didn't come out 
in 2002, but it also didn't come out in 2022 either. So the timing is interesting to ponder. In the film too, they make reference to quote, America's war, maybe a nod to our involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan in 2006 and beyond. Like I said, the movie was received pretty well. According to Box Office Mojo, the film's budget was between 50 and $54 million, and they grossed about $134 million. Not a bad return. Some political commentators did not appreciate this movie, like Joe Scarborough, who has a pretty interesting interview with some film critics about his take on this film. It'll be linked in the episode notes if you want to check that out. As a short synopsis, he basically took issue with this film's political message and the portrayal of blowing up British Parliament, especially given the context in 2006 when terrorism was at the forefront of many people's minds. I really encourage you to read the interview that's in the episode notes. In my opinion, I just feel like Scarborough is putting a lot of weight in this film and way extrapolating on its ultimate effect on on America, which, you know, I don't know if you've been paying attention much to American politics, but um, America is still here despite the film. And dude, even Alan Moore didn't like this movie. I think I can understand where Joe Scarborough is coming from in terms of the message about blowing up Parliament, considering the context of the time. And he has a bit about Hollywood focusing on Western democracies as dictatorships. And like Team America came out in 2004, and that's probably the worst example. I think Children of Men also came out later in 2006, which is sort of the same thing, a dystopian depiction of a future United Kingdom. But maybe Hollywood picks on Western democracies as a warning of where we could head if the citizenry isn't vigilant. And somehow Joe Scarborough doesn't appear, at least in this interview, to entertain that viewpoint. Plus, writers like Alan Moore in Democracies can at least critique and write about their own governments or imagine their governments becoming tyrannical. In a totalitarian society, I see an allowance of that kind of critique being much less likely to happen. Let's recap. Alan Moore, born in Northampton, England, wasn't a fan of school, loved to read, worked odd jobs, and found he could make a real living writing and illustrating comics. He created the honestly underappreciated story of V for Vendetta. V for Vendetta takes place in a dystopian future where the UK has been taken over by a totalitarian Norsefire government. The Norsefire government is composed of various departments named for body parts like the head, nose, mouth, and eyes, each with specific functions. The Finger are the secret police of the Norsefire government, and their agents are Fingermen. The movie and the comic have distinct differences in tone, characters, and story. Alan Moore was not a fan of the movie adaptation of his work. Well, that's basically it for this episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Short one today, for once. Now, the first full-length episode in 2024 is going to be on the Kempe Tai in Japan. One thing I am making a priority before I do that episode is to get caught up with all my YouTube videos. So I am still making videos for each one of the Russia episodes and then the Tantan Makut episode. I really want to get this done and get the YouTube channel growing more. So if you would go over to YouTube and subscribe 
subscribe to Secret Police Podcast on YouTube. Um, I've got all the podcast episodes over there as well as shorter videos as sort of a visual synopsis. I don't really have a time frame on this. I do know that the videos take much less time to make than the actual podcast episodes. So I'm hoping to get this done within January, February. So I wouldn't expect the Kempei Tai episode until about late February, maybe mid-March. That being said, I do appreciate everybody's patience with me to get the episodes out. I know I think I can only about manage once per month, but you know, things have been pretty busy on my end. Um, I'm starting a new job this year or this coming year. There's just a lot going on and um, I really enjoy making this content for you guys and the positive feedback I get um, is, and the, the people that I've met this year through this show um, is something, it's, it's hard to describe how appreciative I am of everybody's support and patience with me and how much everybody has enjoyed the show. If you have discovered me this year, again, welcome. Um, I'm <laughs> glad you're here for this dark ride. And um, yeah, I hope to just watch out for those YouTube videos and uh, you'll hear from me next year. Agents dismissed.